The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. So I am Joy Forrest and I am the founder of Called to Peace Ministries. Um, we are a, I don't know if the, I'm gonna try this little fancy gadget. Yeah. No. <laughs> nope. I, I did the intro in the other class, but you might, we're not all here. So Call to Peace Ministries is actually a domestic violence ministry. We offer faith-based support groups, biblical counseling, and practical support to victims of domestic violence. And we offer um, mentoring and training to people helpers. Because one thing that we've learned, and I think it's pretty evident by just watching the news, uh, the church has really uh, fallen short when it comes to responding to abuse in any form, uh, domestic abuse and sexual abuse as well. Um, the reason Anne-Marie asked me, you know, would you like to present a couple of workshops? And I knew she wanted me to do one on domestic abuse. And she said, would there be any other topic that you would like to address? And so in the last couple of years, I have really... Um, been seeing more and more women come through our ministry, our domestic violence ministry, who experience childhood sexual abuse. And I would say, I, I always say to folks, if, if I have a woman who wants to hold on to God and who um, is really dedicated to the Word of God, I can lead her to healing, you know, who has gone through domestic abuse. I can lead her to healing. It takes time, but God's Word is faithful. I mean, it's true, and it's true for the, the childhood victims as well. But it is, it's a whole different animal. And I don't know if you guys have experienced that, if you've worked with people who've experienced childhood sexual abuse. Um, and of course, the earlier in life that it occurred, the more uh, difficult the healing process is because we're looking at something that happened before their personalities even developed. And so we're going to get into that. Um, and so I just wanted to really, I think I might have just done this for my own benefit too, because I'm learning so much. So you guys are going to be um, sh learning what I've been learning for the last two years as I've been dealing with this. So definition, let's give a definition. Um, she's going backwards. <laughs> what? There we go. So childhood sexual abuse occurs whenever one person dominates and exploits another by means of sexual activity or even suggestion. I mean, interesting, the Me Too movement that occurred, I guess it's been a couple of years ago now, um, all they did was ask, Has, have you ever had anybody approach you in an inappropriate way, you know, with a sexual suggestion or whatever? And I think that most of my friends, my female friends could say yes. That's happened to me at some point in my life. So, but basically we're looking at somebody who is exploiting and or using another person for their selfish, you know, gain or their selfish uh, pleasure. So we could say it that way. And then uh, sexual abuse occurs whenever a person, could be a child or an adult, is sexually exploited by an other, uh, an older or more powerful person for the satisfaction of that abuser's needs. And we know in biblical counseling we wouldn't use that, but I'm quoting somebody else. <laughs> but their wants. And it would involve grooming. Um, recently, because of all the sexual, you know, the um, fallout that I'm seeing with so many of the women coming to us who experience childhood sexual abuse, 
I have, um, my daughter was telling me about that movie, Leaving Neverland. Are you guys familiar with that, about Michael Jackson? And I wouldn't necessarily, it was hard to watch. I had to just fast forward through the first half. But it was interesting to me. It's the same thing that we find with victims of domestic violence. We find that they don't see themselves as victims. Because grooming, when somebody is grooming another person, what they're doing is they are getting them, uh, they're making them feel like they're part of their inner circle, circle, that they're giving them special treatment. They're giving them you know, uh, even preferential treatment. That's what Michael Jackson did. You're so special to me. And so there are these two young men who have come out and were basically the two who were interviewed for the movie. Um, They were saying they did not recognize that it was sexual abuse until after they had their own children. And then they realized this was not right. What happened to me? In fact, one of them testified at one of the trials saying it was not abuse. So grooming is something that it, it really involves mind games and it's, it's, um, it's manipulating their thought processes. So actually they think that it's love when it's really exploitation and abuse. So here um, some things that childhood sexual abuse includes would be um, any sexual act between an adult and a minor. It could be between two minors. Um, but when one exert, exerts power over the other, forcing, coercing, or persuading a child to engage in any type of sexual act. And, I mean, that could even just be watching pornography. So it doesn't have to be physical or, you know, the going all the way. Um, it could also include no contact acts such as exhibitionism, exposure to porn, voyeurism, and communicating in a sexual manner by phone or internet. And the facts about it. Uh, I believe that, that childhood sexual abuse, CSA, is, is, compl- is extremely underreported. We know that it is. In fact, I had always heard one in five women would have experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse in their lifetime. And now the statistic has gone up. They're saying because of mandate, you know, mandatory reporting. But again, I, I, I um, have talked to a friend of mine who's an expert, and she says she believes it's way underreported. So we really have no way of knowing. We know that it's less than 1 in 10 uh, females, and um, even with the males, it's, it's something like, I think, 1 in 12. But I think that could be under 1 in 10 as well. So about 1 in 10, this is, these are the new statistics, you know, since mandatory reporting began you know, that we as counselors are, are mandatory reporters. If we hear any uh, indication that there is sexual abuse going on uh, with a child, we have to call, we have to report it. That is not the case with domestic abuse. There may, I think there's two states in the nation that require you to report domestic abuse, but usually because that's an adult who can make a decision, we don't have to report that, but we always, I don't know of any state that doesn't require us to report childhood sexual abuse. Okay, so about 1 in 10 is what they're saying now will be sexually abused by the time they're 18, but it could be as high as 1 in 5. And about 1 in 7 girls and 1 in 25 boys, and again, these are the new statistics, so I believe that the old one was um, 1 in 5 and 1 in 12. We are mandated reporters, I've already said that, so we can skip to the next. About 90% of victims of childhood sexual abuse will know their abuser. So I always tell people, stranger danger is a myth. (laughs) 
approximately 30% of children who are, are sexually abused are abused by family members. So these are just good facts to know. The younger the victim, the more likely it is that the, that a, the abuser is a family member because you know they tend to be in the home when they're younger. And those who molest children look like or act like everyone else. They can be your neighbors, friends, church, and family members. This has been the thing that has been most shocking to me since doing this ministry is the number of people who are in ministry who happen to be predators. It's come out in the Southern Baptist Convention. But I didn't realize this um, because, you know, I lived through domestic abuse, but my, my husband at the time was not, uh, well, he was a Christian, but he was not in ministry in any, any form or fashion. But since we've been doing our support groups, we have seen that about 30% of the women who come through our support groups are married to men in ministry. And so we also see a very high number. I mean, even some of the, sometimes those guys will be sexually abusing their children as well as abusing their wives. So we see an overlap with all these kinds of abuse. So guys, are you familiar with the Adverse Childhood um, Experiences Study? All right. So this is a study that you really should familiarize yourself with. Um, it was a, it was, the original study was done back in, um, between 1995 and 1997. It was actually a study on obesity. So they were um, doing research on these folks who were obese, and they were finding that they would get them on a weight loss program, and then they would just fall back into it. So they started uh, setting them up with psychologists and, uh, you know, counselors and things like that. And eventually it led to them doing a, a questionnaire, and they found that um, out of the 1,700 members of this uh, HMO who were, who were um, interviewed, uh, they, they completed you know, physical exams and then did these confidential surveys. Um, they, they found that the, the ones who had the, the weight gain and the weight issues many, many times had these adverse childhood experiences um, that were um, contributing to what was going on with them. But the, go back, would you go back a little bit? Um, yeah. So, and yeah, this is all, you can find it on the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. You can find that on their website as well. Um, all right. And so the three general categories for the adverse childhood experiences were abuse in, their, in the home, their primary home, uh, you know, when they were growing up. And there are different types of abuse. So, um, also neglect, that could be physical, emotional um, neglect. Household challenges, just if they had um, exposure to domestic violence, household substance abuse, mental illness in the household, um, parental separation or divorce, or even if they had a family member, a parent particularly, who was incarcerated. Well, here's what they found the impacts to be. Number one is the study found that childhood trauma increases the odds of heart disease, stroke. So it was not just, and we, we've been trying to tell people this, working with domestic violence victims for years, we see physical effects. I have a friend who is a uh, OBGYN doc, and she says, if I could get these, you know, I know that many times the things that I'm seeing in my patients, it all stems back to stress. 
and and she says I see them and I can't help them because I know they're in abusive situations and they won't get out but they've got high blood pressure they've got they're at risk for all of these things and so are children who grow up with these things so uh, more at risk for heart disease stroke depression suicide diabetes lung disease alcoholism and liver disease later in life and increases risky behaviors. Um, you'll find that they're, they can tend to be more sexually promiscuous and things like that. Um, and then, can, you know, well, I just said that. So um, the life expectancy, this is what blows my mind. Life expectancy for folks who had high ACEs scores was 20 years shorter on average than the, than the average person. So we're saying that these traumatic experiences that happen with these folks early in life stays with them unless, I mean, healing is possible. We know that all things are possible with him, but it, it's like Hosea 4, 6, you know, people perish for a lack of knowledge. We have to know how to deal with it. And, and we're going to get to that as well. <clears throat> the CDC estimates that the lifetime cost associated with child mistreatment is $124 billion. Um, this includes productivity loss, health care costs, special education needs, child welfare involvement in criminal justice system. So, and then the severity of impact um, for people who have, have experienced childhood sexual ab uh, abuse are the following. They're, the more closely related the abuser is to the child, the greater the impact. And I have folks um, that are in our support groups who were experienced sexual abuse at the hands of their own fathers. And those are the ones that I, that really have the most difficult time or they, the healing process is just going to be longer for folks like this. Cause just imagine this is the person you're supposed to be able to trust. This is the person who has been entrusted with your care and you have been betrayed by that person at an early age, you're so young, you can't even process it. Most victims of childhood sexual abuse take the blame for what happened to them. And they, they're just loaded with all this shame. So it is very, very difficult getting back to untangle what's happened to them. We know what Jesus said is true. You'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. But when you're so young it, and, and you've got somebody that you're supposed to be able to trust telling you that what happened is okay, or that it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have done this, then they're going to believe that. And so we have um, a very confused person, and they are believing these deep-seated lies. They're so deep-seated that they don't even know how to untangle them. So the, again, the earlier the on, age of onset, the greater the impact. <clears throat> I've been told by <clears throat> a friend of mine who works mostly with childhood sexual abuse victims that prior to age five, that's when there's a real big difference. That's when you're going to see, because that is when the personality is developing. And if you had abuse before the personality really fully developed, there's not that, that, there's that lack of stability between the ages of zero and five. Um, you've got somebody who's extremely, extremely confused. A lot of times dissociative. Are you guys familiar with that term? So basically they they almost try to escape. They'll go off into this fantasy land. And um, I've had um, clients or people that come through our ministry who say um, they get dissociative when they have a panic attack. They start where they can't even feel their hands and their, their feet and they feel like they're floating above their body. It just happens to them because they don't, they have learned ways of dealing with the abuse by trying to escape it in their mind. And it just follows them throughout life. 
So when combined with other adverse experiences, the impact is going to be greater as well. <clears throat> and you'll see personality distortion. So when you see them for counseling, a lot of times it's going to, I'll tell you one thing, it's going to take a long time to develop trust. The, the couple of women that I have seen that have come through our ministry like this, um, they don't trust anybody. They've never had anybody they could trust. Just imagine this. I, I'm sitting there listening to their stories. Oh, it's hard to say sometimes. I, I, you know, even just, I used to work in a domestic violence shelter and listening to the stories, they're telling me how they were treated from the time they were little and how the people who were supposed to care for them tormented them instead. And then how they married somebody who did the same thing. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at this person and I'm thinking, nobody has ever loved you. No person on this earth has ever loved you unconditionally. That's the case. Sometimes maybe they had a grandparent if they had somebody who cared. But I've had those who have never had a caring person. So how are they going to trust you? In fact, this one woman I've been walking with for a couple of years now, she goes, I don't understand. Like, why are you, why are you doing this for me? I'm like, because he did this for me and, and I, you know, he's good and I, and he loves you and I love you in his name. And she just, she, two years later, she's learning to trust, but it's very, very, very difficult. And, and I understand it. And sometimes she'll get mad at me and try to push me away. Look, I know what you know. You've got to be after something. So just, no, I'm not. Let's just be done. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't want to be hurt. She's afraid that I'm going to abandon. So when you get involved counseling somebody who's been through this kind of abuse, you better be in it for, you better be committed to it because you're going to hurt them again. And I, I hate to say that, but, you know, Deepak last night talking, he was saying, we've got to love people. We've got to like roll up our sleeves. I wouldn't take on too many folks like this. I don't know how my friend who does this all the time does it. But I mean, they do need somebody. If you can find somebody else in their life to be their constant and their steady, somebody who would actually even go to counseling appointments with them or whatever it may be. I mean, I'm, these are the ones I'm talking who have been abused all their lives. They are the most difficult. Um, but they're going to have... I would call it, we would call it personality distortions. They are folks that they don't, they don't know what normal looks like. They have no idea what normal looks like. They don't know how to trust. They don't know, and again, what, what healthy, they have no concept of what a healthy uh, family relationship looks like. I mean, these, both of the ladies, I have a couple of them that are in, still in our group. And uh, it's interesting to me. They have a part of them that has like held on to God. They see him because I'll say, and I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead again of myself again, but um, they'll, I'll ask them, where was Jesus? Or sometimes I'll say, well, how did you get through it maybe? And a lot of times they have Jesus stories, which is amazing because they do know that there's a God that, tr that, that loves them. Um, I've had three or four ladies tell me little Jesus stories you know, you don't want to contrive it or say, hey, where's Jesus and all this? Did you see Jesus in that? But no, if you start asking them, did you know God when you were younger? Or ask them a question like that, a lot of times that will um, help. It'll help you get a better picture that that's where, I mean, because most of the time when they're coming to us, they're believers, right? And so there's a part of them that's holding on to God, but there's still so much fear and um, lack of trust and everything else. And you guys, this has been something I've been learning about. I didn't get in, in my biblical counseling program. 
Um, in seminary, we got very little on trauma. Um, and I, I think that in recent years, they have done a lot of research and we have learned so much more about the brain science. And because they can just do brain scans and see that, they're, that traumatized people's, people have brains that are different than those of us who are, have not been as traumatized, right? So, um, and they can actually do brain scans and just see people who have PTSD versus those who don't. And, and so forth. So you're looking at somebody who's hypervigilant a lot of times. They've got lifelong PTSD and they have they're they're prone to panic attacks and things like that. And one thing you'll find with these folks is they have a real uh, they will be really grieving the loss of their childhood is they feel like somebody stole their innocence and that they didn't have a chance to have a normal childhood. So that's going to be something that you'll see with these folks. They can also have long-term depression and anxiety, and I don't really think I've seen any that didn't have that, uh, especially the anxiety. Anxiety is very common. They've got guilt, shame, and self-blame because they've been groomed to take, the, I mean, to take the blame. Every one of them that I know is like, well, if I hadn't have done this, I have this one woman going, I was, wearing a, I was wearing a bikini. This is a bikini her mother put her in at age five. Did I cause him to do that because I was wearing a bikini at age five? I'm like, no, yeah, that's just not normal. That is not, you know, that was your dad's choice. That is definitely not, you know, a normal man would not be attracted to a five-year-old child. Okay, so we have to tell them over and over again many times. And my friend who works with nothing but trauma, uh, you know, childhood sexual abuse victims, she said, I haven't worked with one yet who didn't have some type of eating disorder. So I've got two that don't eat at all, but you can also see it on the other end where they eat all the time. You can see bulimia, you can see anorexia. So it's very, very common. And that is, at least I can control that. I can have no control over anything else happening in my life, but I can control that. They will have sleep issues. Insomnia is a big thing with these folks. Um, and then random physical pain, I have seen that as well. Sometimes right through here, you know, the abdomen or the back, they will have just these unexplained pains. And then, child, let's see, they also experience the following. They can be, they can abuse drugs or alcohol. It's kind of like self-medicating. Um, they can become sexually promiscuous. We've talked about that already. And then we talked about the dissociation. So patterns of dissociation and denial. Um, and that makes them more susceptible to further harm in the future. Um, one, of the, one of the ladies I've worked with was saying um, that she went, to, went somewhere the other day and somebody groped her. And I said, oh my goodness, did you call the police? Did you? She said, no, I just froze up. I couldn't do anything. And she goes, I guess I'm, it's like I'm a target or something. And I'm thinking, yes, well, people can probably sort of see it in you. But then whenever she is being attacked, instead of having the fight or flight, she shuts down. And so it does make you more susceptible to further abuse. And then sexual and relationship problems that can definitely interfere with issues, you know, cause issues within a marriage. And so we see that quite often. So what are the counseling challenges for somebody who has been through childhood sexual abuse? They're going to have a warped view of God and, of, and then, of course, of themselves. And so that's what we're here talking about. We're talking about their identity. And the two are definitely linked together, the view of God and self. 
They're going to have a lack of trust that I've already talked about. They're going to have that complex PTSD. You know the difference between P just what regular PTSD and complex. So what they would say is PTSD is kind of like a one-time event or like a combat veteran who had, you know, a bomb go off beside his head or when I went down to um, do hurricane relief after Hurricane Katrina, almost all those kids had, you know, PTSD because of the storm and the, thing, the bad things that happen. Complex PTSD can be the result of more low-grade trauma over the long, it's like a, well, my friend Chris Moles calls it, he says, you know, one bee sting won't hurt you, but if a thousand bee stings could kill you. So it's just a cumulative effect of lots of little traumas. Although some of these folks, the ones that I've dealt with, they weren't very little, they were huge. <clears throat> so they can be triggered, and that means that if somebody, a sight, a smell, somebody telling a story can cause a panic attack. And I've seen it happen. We have support groups for those survivors of domestic abuse. And one night, one of the girls decided that she, I wasn't there that night because I would have cut it off, but she decided that she was going to share the sexual abuse that happened in her marriage. And like three people ran out of the room. One of them said she didn't even know how she got home because she was just out of it. It triggered her so much. And so, um, a, you know, a trigger is something that's just gonna remind them. And what happens is what scientists have learned now is that your body holds memories. Mm -hmm. So your body will go into cringing, it will, um, it will seem like you're experiencing it. And, you, and so some of the ladies that I've worked with, they're so, why am I acting? What's going on with me? Why am I just doing this? Because the body holds a memory. And so some, a, a trigger can actually set off that memory, that body memory, so that your body just cringes or you go into that panic attack or whatever it may be. And then, um, again, like we talked about earlier, because they've been groomed, they may not even see what has happened to them as abusive and you have to teach them. That's part of the healing process to teach them that that was unhealthy, that was abusive. And then um, they may be minimizing it. Well, they didn't really mean it or it wasn't that bad, you know, because there was never really any sexual act. It was just, you know, touching or whatever it may be, but you've got to let them know that it was not right. That is not God's best plan. And then you're gonna find a lot of times with these folks, they're gonna have a lot of, um, anxiety about just even coming in talking to a counselor because they don't want to rehash it and we're not actually asking them to rehash but um, they will have a lot I, I've uh, had to go with one of them and I basically have just gone with them to another counselor because it is so in-depth and her abuse started like age two or three and so I'm going with her to another counselor and she had panic attacks in the car going to the counselor she was so anxious about having to, because if I go and I start talking about what I need to talk about for healing, it might make it real, because I'm trying to pretend that never happened to me. And so um, they do become very anxious when it's time for counseling. <clears throat> A lot of times they can be controlling themselves. They can be abusive or withdrawn themselves because they haven't healed. And, and this is one thing I find working with abuse victims in general. If you don't heal from abuse, you have a good chance of becoming abusive yourself. And so um, they could make generalized statements about giving, giving it over to God, but their actions don't reflect a real faith in Him. I think it was like Deepak was talking last night. You know, we say that, we, or was that Jeremy? We say that we believe that, there's, that God is real and that He's on the throne, 
but we don't really act like it. There's a big disconnect between what's coming out of our mouth and the way we're acting, and you're going to see that a lot with these. You probably see that a lot with most of your counselees, but... <laughs> And then you'll see a great deal of shame, meaning, you know, and the difference between guilt and shame is what? Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. I am no good. Like, I'm worthless. So these are some statements that I have heard from some of the folks that I work with. You have no idea how much I hate myself. And then one says, those years ruined everything. My self-identity is sad, melancholic, shy, retiring and angry, never content or at peace. And this one says, I am not like other people. I feel so different and I don't fit in anywhere. You'll see that a lot. They don't have any understanding of love. Maybe if they had at least one caring person, um, maybe a grandparent or a an aunt or an uncle that, that was loving, it can lessen the severity of what's happened to them. So, you know, you're gonna find a scale because again, just one caring person in their childhood could make a huge difference in how fast they're gonna heal. They have um, confusion. Our bodies are made to experience, phys- you know, pleasure um, in certain ways. And if they experience pleasure because of that, then they feel guilty, like they caused it. You know, so that is very confusing to them and that just adds to the shame. And then it's like even within their marriage, well, I, I shouldn't ever feel pleasure. That Then they feel guilty about that. Again, no trust. We've talked about um, control issues. You'll find they're very, they can be perfectionistic. They can be OCD, like compulsive, just they got to have everything, all their ducks in a row and doing things the exact way. Um, and then how can you help? Number one, pray, pray, pray. This is one of those to me. I've done a lot of heavy-duty counseling over the years, and I feel pretty equipped to help most people. In fact, when I was at this church of 2,000 members, they would like, oh, it's a difficult one. Just send it to Joy. But when it comes to childhood sexual abuse, it's to me, this is the most one of the most challenging things I've ever had to deal with. Um, So you you pray your way through it, because God will give you wisdom if you ask. Let them know that their struggles are that are. What you're dealing with right now is common to people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse because they feel so different and they feel like, you know, it's just me. Nobody's like me. If you let them know this is common and I have I know that there are other people who have experienced the same thing as you. Doesn't that make you feel better when you know you're not the only one? I know that it did for me because when I was just going through the domestic abuse, I thought nobody's ever been through this before. Nobody knows. And, um, and truly, like, I couldn't even find a support group back then. So it was very, it made me feel like there was something particularly wrong with me, with my family. And so that's especially true for people who've experienced it growing up, if they didn't see anybody else ever go through anything like that. And then help them avoid why questions regarding the abuse. Like, why did this happen to me? I think that, um, you know, people who get stuck on why questions are going to be stuck in depression. The, the question they need to be asking is, what? Lord, what do you want to accomplish in my life through this? You know, what can you do or what do I need to do to move towards healing? To stop asking why questions because that's going to keep them tripped up and, and not moving forward. And then, again, we've talked about this earlier. Most of them do have some God stories. So you can ask them if you know where, you know, like, how did you make it through or where do you believe God was in that? You know, how did you come to know God? 
And I think those can be very helpful um, questions to ask. You can also teach them grounding skills. Are you guys familiar with the grounding skills? So um, that could be um, taking a deep breath, taking a deep breath and holding it and just letting it out very slowly can actually help. But what happens, especially for those people who are dissociating, the ones who are kind of trying to leave their body, they just want to zone out because their brain has, they've, they've actually trained their brain to do that as a self-protection mechanism. For those, there's actually, there's some uh, grounding techniques. You can find them online, but there's one called the 54321 that this uh, friend of mine uses very often. And, you know, like you name five things you see, start describing them, and then you um, you know, four things that you can touch or whatever it may be. You're going through all the senses and you, she says, because if you can make sure that they stay here in the present, then they're not going to be able to, you know, go out in, with their imagination. So you want to try to bring them back. Deep breathing is always very helpful. Tip skill, one of the first part of that is temperature, but you can look all of these up. And um, if you've got somebody who's prone to panic attacks. And then, well, let's see. <laughs> let them know that they were not responsible again and again. You may have to let them know this over and over again. Um, they are, you know, again, children have a tendency to want to blame themselves for everything. And so that's going to be, you know, the main lies. We have to help them find the lies that are attached to the abuse. Right. And for most of these kids, they think that somehow they were responsible for what happened to them. And then teach them that healing is not about building self-esteem but receiving the authority of what God says about them along with the witness and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of times what I've found with working with abuse victims is scripture has been used as a weapon. So you cannot, uh, we've got to bring the Holy Spirit into this um, because the word of God without the Holy Spirit can lead to legalism and people can use it to dominate people. I had one lady tell me that her father would quote the Lord's Prayer when he was abusing her sexually. So, you know, sometimes you can't go straight to the Word of God even, but you can teach them the truths of God's Word, and you want to just be telling them about how loving He is. Sometimes for these, these women who are so traumatized, and again, we've got men, but you know, I just work with women, so don't let me uh, make you think that it's, this, this doesn't happen to little boys too. But what we do is I really will teach them. I believe that there is so much power in worship, music. One thing that we've learned about trauma is that it's stored on in another part of the brain that logic can't reach. You can't say, you're okay now, and it reached the traumatized part of your brain, which is the brain stem usually, the amygdala, and even parts of the right brain that are not touched by your logical center, you know, your logic. So just going, I'm okay now, I'm okay now, that doesn't work, all right? And so, you know, in the world, they have, they have techniques called EMDR, but all, the whole idea behind those is to, to wake up the whole brain. Some people think it works, some people don't. But the idea is they've, they've shown, too, that meditation works. And I've told the folks in my earlier class, um, I know that God healed my PTSD, and how he did that was I uh, took passages of Scripture, I posted them all over my walls, and when I got really upset, I would go to the scripture. I would say it out loud. I would pray it out loud over and over again. It was like a mantra. And so God's word really did bring healing. But it wasn't just God's word and me going, you know, I can do all things through Christ. I'm not saying that with my logic. I was meditating on it. There is a difference when you want to have healing 
you've got to really meditate on it. And that's where I believe music is very powerful. Look at David in the Psalms. David was running from an abusive man and he wrote songs. And, it, and scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. And he, his sin was so much worse than Saul's when you look at, you know, what we would consider the, the, the most vile of sins. He was a murderer and an adulterer. And all Saul did was forget to kill some sheep. And yet David was a man after God's own heart because he was a worshiper. So to me, worship is powerful. And if you can teach these people that God loves them and to help them connect to him and his goodness, that is a huge step towards their healing. Um, help them to do maybe a thought journal. Now, this is not a journal of whatever, everything that happened. But what I find is that people who've been abused, they, they have these low um, thoughts that fly underneath the radar because you could... Well, for example, one time I had this woman and she was really struggling with depression. And I said, well, what do you think about all day? And she says, nothing. I don't think. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I thought, I don't believe that. <laughs> so I told her, I just want you to set a timer. I want you to set a timer for every hour. And I want you to have a little notepad. And I just want you to jot down what were you thinking about. You don't have to make it fancy. There's nothing. This is not like I think this, I think that. It's just what were you thinking about at 2 o'clock? And you do that, you know, it's various times of the day. They may not need to do it every hour or every half hour during the day. But if they know that there's a time where they're particularly depressed or anxious, then set their timer for that. And just write it down. Then you can identify because what they'll say, they, oh, when I went back to that lady and I said, OK, did you did you do the thought journal? She goes, yeah. And I said, well, what were you thinking? Well, I didn't write it down, but you're right. I was thinking and it wasn't good. And so what you do from that is you take that little thought journal, those things that they were thinking, and let's identify the lies that are in that. What were you thinking that was, lie, was a lie? You know, it could be a lot of the lies will say things like, I can't, I will never, I should have. They, they think that they should have done something that made, could have made a different outcome. All of those things, you've got to attack each one of those lies and start having them meditate on scriptures that are going to counter those lies. You can explain that redemption is not just for salvation, okay? God didn't just, he didn't just come down and die so that we could live eternally. Because if that was the case, why don't we just all go to heaven right now? He brings redemption into the everyday. He takes ugly, he takes ashes and turns it to beauty, right? So we have to, to Maybe teach them things like the story of Joseph. You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. How could God possibly use something so terrible in a good way? Well, I believe that he can. And even if you can, it would be very helpful. Uh, I think support groups are extremely powerful. By the way, Call to Peace is, um, I just finished my workbook. And we're trying to do, we're trying to get um, support groups going around the country. We've got some. We've got one here. And then we have some in, um, one in Indiana, one in North Carolina, but there really aren't that many faith-based support groups. There's, there's a lot of power in the support group because <coughs> they see they're not alone, that somebody else has been through what they've been through. And it's huge for them to know that. Um, it's just, it's good in so many ways um, to be able to, to actually talk out what the healing truths are. You know, and, and to not just sit there. I'm not talking about a support group where everybody comes in and just vomits how terrible they feel about everything. 
our support groups, they're, they're very limited in how much they can share. They just want to know that they have a common experience. But we also want them to, then we want to start focusing on how do you heal when you're experiencing these things. Um, so explain that redemption is um, not just for salvation and then talk about how might God redeem this in your life? How might he have already started to redeem it in your life? And sometimes they can tell you that already. Most of them will see themselves reaching back to help others. That's part of the redemption. And then you need to uh, address misplaced worship. That would be, in most cases, of people who've been abused. Guess who's become the biggest person in their life? It isn't God anymore. It's a person. And so how can you make God bigger than this person who has had so much power? They've been all powerful. And let's just think about it. If it was a parent who was abusing, they seemed omnipotent because there was nothing they could do to stop that abuse. And so, you know, but the sad thing is that it carries on. And we could say to them, look, God did get you out of it. You're not there anymore. You know, and so to help them understand that God really is more powerful, He did see them through it. There was a season of suffering, and, and that's just it. Now we just need to learn to think and get our thinking lined up. Please do not focus on their sin. Instead, focus on God's goodness and understanding that His kindness leads us to repentance. Um, and especially when it comes to a child, the child, there's nothing that a child could have ever done to cause an adult to, to abuse them. And then um, the path to healing, I always say no matter what kind of abuse you've experienced, the number one step to healing is admitting the truth that it happened, that it was abusive. Because as long as you're making excuses for the abuser or making excuses for what happened or bl even blaming yourself, um, or, you know, as long as we stay twisted in our thinking, there's no healing. Truth sets us free. And that means the ugly truth as well as the beautiful truth. And then they have to even recognize the impact that the abuse has had on them. Learn to um, learn the effects of trauma and then strategy, strategies to overcome. So that would maybe those grounding techniques that we talked about. Um, you know, we are just really blessed in our area that we have some... I would call it their trauma therapists, but they're very committed to biblical principles. And so I'm really grateful for that. And they will use scripture, you know, as alongside whatever their, the techniques that they have learned, because sometimes they can be helpful. Um, and then replace the lies with truth scripture. And this is what we do in all of our biblical counseling. Um, but here's going to be the main lies that you're going to have to overcome. Lies about God and his nature, because they're like, where was God? You know, I had a woman say, where the hell was he? You know, if he's so good, then why did he allow all this to happen to me? And you know what I will do a lot of times when they're talking about suffering all their lives, I will read Isaiah 53 to them. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. He knows grief, you know, and he carried this burden. He allowed his own children to spit in his face, to pluck out his beard, to nail him to a tree. He loved you that much because he wanted to enter into your suffering. He doesn't ever take away our abuser's ability to choose. He gives them free will to sin. But he will take and he will redeem what you've been through just like he redeemed his own. And he came and he entered into our suffering. You know, it says in um, Hebrews chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who can't um, identify with our suffering. He knows. He knows exactly what we've been through. 
And then the second part is a lies about who they are and their identity in Christ. So there's a bunch of scriptures that I've given you. They're new creations. They're his masterpiece, his workmanship. We have to let them know who they are. And again, then do it in a way that it gets from that traumatized part of the brain over, or excuse me, from that logical side of the brain to the traumatized side. And then um, we do this in our workbook. The workbook that I have, um, we have lessons on how to deal with things like anger and sadness because they've got to grieve. You know, I think sometimes in the church we're just like, oh, you know, rejoice in the Lord or pat them on the back, you know, just get over it kind of. We will quote scriptures in a just get over it kind of way. That does not work. Okay. We have to um, allow them to grieve, but to grieve well. It says even, uh, I think it's the second Thessalonians. We don't, or is it first? We, we don't grieve like the world grieves. All right. We can grieve to the honor and the glory of God. But even Jesus grieved outside the tomb of Lazarus. So there's nothing wrong with grieving. There's something wrong with allowing the grief to take over and to start controlling you. Same thing with anger. Nothing wrong with being angry. But there's a problem once it starts to control you, you know. And, and so that means, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Usually we can't hold on to anger very long without it becoming sinful. So um, knowing how to, to commit that anger to God. And so working through all of those individual emotions um, and, and dealing with them from a scriptural perspective. And then deal with the guilt and shame, letting them know that the abuse was never the victim's fault. They might have sinned in response to sin. And that's one of the last things we want to get to. Because we go and start telling them what they've done wrong and they've already starting to, they're already believing that they're, they're responsible. That's just not the place to start with somebody who's been victimized. So, you know, and, and even then I don't go, well, let's look at your sin. I don't ever say that. What I'll say is, hey, so, you know, how did you respond to that? Can you see how this response, because, hey, sin hurts us. So when we're sinning, we're hurting ourselves. Let's go back and see how you've responded to that and what, how that's hurt you. And God doesn't want that for you. He's got a better plan. So let's look at how you could respond in a better way so that, um, you know, you're not causing more harm to yourself and to others that you love. They need to understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then they need to understand that redemption is not just for salvation. And we've talked about that already. Um, so other things that you need to do is to work on forgiveness. And that means that we need to understand forgiveness is uh, you have to admit to the full weight of what happened. When I was a kid, this is the way my, I was one of four children. And when it was time to forgive, we get in a fight. My mom and my mom would say, now you guys just hug each other, forgive each other and hug and make up. And this is how the forgiveness process looked. I forgive you. And he go, I'm sorry. And I would go, I know you didn't mean it. All right. Number one, that's a big problem right there. Because when somebody's abused you, they meant it. They meant it for harm. They meant an ugly thing against you. So you have to admit to that, not make excuses for it and say, somebody did me harm. They intended harm against me. And now I've got to just release it to God. It doesn't mean uh, one night we were in our support group and the woman, the women were saying, well, it's just so hard to forgive. It's like you're letting them off the hook. And I don't know. It just came right out of my mouth, but I believe it's true. I said, well, it's, it is. It's not letting them off the hook. It's putting them on God's hook because God is the one who enacts justice. We don't have the ability to do that. It's saying, I don't have a need for revenge. I'm putting this person in your hands and I'm asking, I am praying God's, you know, 
blessings on him because the best blessing that God could ever give him would be uh, repentance and, and salvation, maybe, uh, if they're not believers. But how many believers would act that way? We don't know. But um, And then also understanding that just because they forgive doesn't mean the relationship will be restored if they can't trust. And so you let them know that, that these things do not equal forgiveness. And this is what forgiveness looks like, and it can help them a lot. And understanding, too, that forgiveness is a choice. Um, and then finally, teaching them to learn how to respond rather than react, because they're very reactive. Um, and then help them think through or talk through and practice their responses to any sin or, you know, just life in general. Because a lot of times these folks do not know how to live life without being reactive to everything. And then practice putting off and putting on that we talk about in Ephesians. You know, we have to put off the anger and put on, you know, you re one thing I've learned in counseling over the years is you can't just stop a behavior. You have to replace it with something new. So, you know, we don't just stop lying. We start truthing, as my friend Chris says. And then we teach them to resist sinful mistreatment. We don't just put ourselves in the path of somebody who's harming us over and over and over again. So teach them say, to say no to sin, because that is actually the most loving thing you can do. People who have been sinned against all their lives think that they're, they're being loving by allowing people to walk all over them. But we have to teach them that's not the case. And help them break the, the victim mentality. I've got a whole chapter about that in the book. Um, and then help them maintain wholeness by walking in gratitude and praise and meditation. So one of the things to me, gratitude is a huge healer to teach them to start praising him. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter to his courts with praise. When we get our eyes and our focus off of what's happened to me and start focusing on how good he is, he will... He does amazing things. God is such a healer. And so, um, like, this is just an overall picture. We do have, like, even I believe that the lessons that are in the workbook would be helpful for child uh, sexual abuse survivors as well as domestic violence victims. But, and they're not in the bookstore. They're at our booth now. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to leave you a little bit of time to ask questions if you'd like. So, anybody got questions? Have you had to deal with this, any of you? Okay, yeah. I'm just hearing from several women in our church that come for other reasons and then it turns out that there's abuse, but they just don't have any desire to go. Like they, they learn how their life is pretty good, so why would I want to go back and deal with those things? Well, it just depends on if it's still affecting their present. You know what I mean? If a lot of times they have not been able to move forward. Um, they still are suffering with anxiety. You know, if, if, I mean, sometimes maybe they have healed enough that they can function. It's just, is it interfering with their daily function? Because the ones that I'm talking about, the ones that I have seen that are so severe, they can't even function um, some days because it's so bad. And so that's when we want to say, but, you know, don't you think, I believe that God has something better for you and I'm willing to help walk with you. Um, I, I met a woman at our retreat um, this a couple of weekends ago, and she was saying that she was actually diagnosed DID, right? So that is uh, dissociative identity disorder. Didn't even know who she was, right? And uh, basically was going off into other personas. 
And one of the things that she just met this pastor who said, we're going to just start quoting scriptures every time something like this happens. She did that, I mean, on a such a regular basis. It wasn't like she had to go in and dig down into her past. But when the body memories would come back or whatever, she started feeling like she was floating away out of her body. She started quoting scriptures and she said it healed her. She hasn't had any problems in eight years. So the Word of God is powerful as long as you're doing it in a meditative way. Do you have a question? Yeah. yeah. What, how do you deal with, or, how, how do, or do you come up against like unclear memories? Unclear memories. Right? When you're like, I, I, I think this happened, or it seems like this happened, you know, or, you know, yeah. kind of the, 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 the gray area of, yeah. Part of, I think, the unclear memory is that dissociation. Yeah. All right. And so um, there's different people that do different ways. But I have found, too, that if, they, if you could actually teach them to really relax, get quiet before the Lord, the Holy Spirit would bring it back up. I believe that. That's one of the things one of the trauma therapists did. She's also, um, you know, doing the more whole brain techniques. Like, again, I know that EMDR is... is um, controversial and people don't think that it works but she believes that is like if you're doing something to stimulate even if they just were to tap their hands alternatively like tap 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 and you know if if they're having that you know feeling or something that they're thinking about it could help bring it up but for me I just believe that as you start asking the Holy Spirit to reveal he will a little at a time because he doesn't bring it all to mind at once you couldn't handle it and so for me, journaling was really powerful just coming out of my domestic abuse. So if there's a way that they can journal, a prayer journal, like you're asking the Holy Spirit to lead you. And to, but it, it seems to me that the more anxious they are, the less clear the memories are. So if they can get themselves to a quiet place and ask God, you know, when, when it's your timing, and he may bring it up at a, at a different time. We don't, uh, you know, I used to say I don't believe in repressed memories, but now that I've worked with a couple of these ladies, I, I see it, but I think it's rare. I think that most people who have experienced domestic abuse, um, I think that the ones that are going to have those repressed memories are the ones that had it before the age of five, okay? But most people who've experienced abuse remember mostly everything that happened. Um, although there were some things <laughs> in my own experience that I had forgotten, but as soon as somebody said something, I went, oh, yeah, there, that did happen. Um, I kind of just put it aside because I didn't want it to have happened. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a difficult thing. But in my own case, just coming out of domestic abuse, and it's a different thing. Um, praying and asking the Lord to um, just help me, to heal me of things. And as I did, he started bringing things to mind. Yes. Yes. Um, how have you helped address like issues with not wanting to be touched or feeling gross, um, but wanting to like yeah. you know give herself to her husband? Yeah. And that block there. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um, basically, I think you've just got to go through a lot of healing to get her to that point. Um, you know, she doesn't want to be touched within the marriage. Um, I guess, fortunately or sadly, <laughs> most of the women that I work with are probably in a separation situation. They're, they're not going back. But I did actually have somebody call me about that recently. 
um, you know, I think that there probably are some techniques and things that you can do some, you know, to help them prepare their mind more for it. Um, and that, you know, I know there's a, there's a book, Aftermath. Do you guys know that book? It's, it's a biblical counseling book on childhood sexual abuse. And, and I think that they address that in there as well. But um, just, I, I mean, I, I think that one thing too, you have to actually work with the husband to make sure that the husband understands you know, you've got to approach this completely differently because of what your wife has been through. So you, um, let's talk about ways that you can do that that won't make her feel that way. You know, so, it's, so you're gonna have to, I think you would have to work with both. My particular case was that it wasn't really affecting her very much until she had children. Mm -hmm. And they became of the age, and then that really triggered. Yeah. So a lot of her, her life with her husband really changed after, like all of a sudden there was this big problem. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Yeah, so I'm really Yeah. Yeah, she would definitely have to have some, you know, healing time and he would really have to respect that and I think that a lot of times sadly if somebody is um you know, really going to have to teach him to care more about her well-being than that need that that desire for sex, you know, for him and as he is able to do that, then I think that they can work it out, but I mean, I I don't think that you can do it with just one person. Because the lady that called me, her husband was putting so much pressure on her. You know, you need to go get help for your issue. That's not going to be real helpful. He, he needed to also see that he needed to be kind and patient with his wife and things like that. So, All right. Anybody? Okay. Um, any tips for how we can approach our churches? Um, with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, I've seen a almost a flinching from a lot of the 100% the male pastoral staff at my church. It's a good church, but <laughs> I've seen a, a lot of like they're they're gun shy now. They're they're like there's too much of this. They're yeah. making more of this than is reality. Yeah. How can I approach them with? the need for this because I come from a social work background so I have this, this need everywhere yes so. well it's so common I'm really the um, Southern Baptist Convention just did that um, what's the name of it I, my brain is gone um, uh, something about a response yeah caring caring well caring well for victims of abuse or something there was a reaction to that yeah. really I, even your church didn't like that uh, not, not my church specifically, but in a lot of the evangelical churches, there was a, a small but very vocal response against that. Against their curriculum? Yeah. Well, and you know, here's the thing. I've been working with victims of abuse for over 20 years now, and you're not going to be able to reach every church. Mm -hmm. They're not going to want to listen. Some of them just won't. And um, I, I, I was telling somebody earlier today, I said, well, you know, there have been situations, it is helpful. You know, I'm a domestic violence victims advocate. I really am like I'm a certified advocate and we teach an advocacy course and victim advocacy can really improve the outcome for the victims. Because a lot of times victims themselves, they're traumatized and they go in and just go and it's overwhelming to somebody who's never, it's like a deer caught in the headlights when a pastor has to listen. So if you had an advocate to go in and say, this is what's happened. This is how it's impacted this person. And they can put it in a logical format for, for a pastor who doesn't want, 
you know, that is going to help more than having that person go in and try to tell what happened to them because that's intimidating to them. But you can, I love what Chris Mole says, a good advocate will take the 20,000 words that a, that a, uh, a victim of abuse will give them and put it into five succinct bullet points. Can you do that? Then your pastor is more likely to hear. And then one thing we do in our ministry is we're doing, um, we're doing, we're going to start to do lunch and learns for pastors. Because if you feed them, my theory is if you feed them, they will come. (laughs) And if you do it during the week, you know, when they, you know, weekend is not a good time because we were doing, you know, conferences on the weekend and they just weren't showing up. Maybe we get some of the associate pastors, but we have our first lunch and learn next week. And we have several, uh, lots of pastors who are signed up for this because we're going to feed them (laughs) and we're going to give them a little education. So, you know, trying to, to educate is, is good. But um, understanding, too, just the trauma itself and the way they, they, rep, they present to the pastors can be part of the problem. All right. I think the danger in what she was saying, the social worker down here, was saying, because um, I did the, the, four, the mandatory 40-hour training that's required in California to, to, to meet with domestic violence victims. And I know that particular curriculum, um, it was done in Long Beach. It's very heavy. Oh, yeah. Man hating. Oh, yeah. So, so there's yeah. a tendency, right. you know, to see if you're going to help a victim, you obviously have to hate men. Right. You know, there's there's that yeah. connection. Right. And so of course, biblical biblical counseling does. Well, see, we have a Bible, a faith-based pr- curriculum. Okay, so it's okay. it's. Uh, it's actually a year long. It's way more than I had to do. I did the North Carolina Coalition, um, also that 40-hour training. And you're right. And I had to do a whole day of what I call indoctrination, where they were teaching me about gender issues. And I'm like, but but they had good stuff in there, too. So I just took what I liked and spit out the seeds. But but we have, Call to Peace Ministries has a faith-based advocacy program. And we're not going to make you angry at men. <laughs> in fact, we have men in our advocacy program. So um, if you come by our table, I've got more information on it. But it's a year long. And uh, Dr. Deborah Wingfield, who actually developed the curriculum, is letting me just tweak it to be a Bible-based curriculum. So we are, are actually, I'm just commenting. And this is from a biblical counseling perspective, this is this. you know. But most of it is just facts and what you see. It's observation facts. It's good stuff. And, um, you know, she's not even a believer, but I, but she's like letting me tweak it however I want or say whatever I need to say to make sure that everybody sees it from a biblical perspective as well. And, but again, there's none of the man hating stuff in there. Um, (laughs) and she, because she's a doctor, she can actually give you, um, college credit if you need it for something or continuing ed credit. So come see us about that. Okay. One more. I think. Yes. And what we found is a helpful strategy is to normalize what they're doing. Not that it was normal, but to say, I feel shame too. I've not been sexually abused. I was not sexually abused as a child, but I feel shame too. And just saying, shame is a normal human condition because it's an identity issue before a holy God. Mm-hmm. And things like guilt. I feel tremendous guilt. You know, you feel guilt. Okay, let's, let's, I'm not going to tell her about my experience of guilt because I've, it's not about me, but just to say we all feel guilt, mm-hmm. and uh, just like we said, if you right, it, letting them know what what's happening to you is right. common. Right. It's not you're not but the only also, one in the world. You yeah. Know, what happened to you was normal, you know, common to man, mm-hmm. and 
perspective was yes, we can we can relate to each other. And yes. just making them feel like they're not on the outside because they feel like they're so mm -hmm. isolated and separated. Yes. They're so abnormal. Um, Mary, yeah. what's her name, has written a book called Unmarked. DeMuth? Yeah. Yeah. They, they feel like they're marked. You know, yes, Mary like DeMuth has written a lot of good stuff on uh, childhood sexual abuse. That's good. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.